Let us pray. O Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of the world our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, after this conversation, you'll understand why I chose that prayer, hopefully, or if you read the book. Um, so, go read the book. Um, welcome, everyone, uh, tonight. I'm so glad everybody's here. I'm really excited about this uh, event tonight. I'm so excited about our, our guest, uh, David Zoll. Um, this is uh, what we're calling the Arts and Culture Series here at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. Um, and the, the intent of this series is just to sort of explore common ground between uh, the culture at large and the church, doing that primarily through talking about um, art, broadly speaking, and, and the culture. Uh, and tonight that has to do with rock and roll, uh, or music more generally. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name's Matt Schneider, I'm one of the canons at uh, the Advent, um, and uh, to my right here is uh, Gil Cracky, who's also on staff. He's our, what are you, our Director of Adult Education. He's also a licensed counselor. And our guest is David Zoll, who's the author of this book. If you want to clap, that's fine. <laughs> a Mess of Help from the Crucified Soul of Rock and Roll. And he's also the Director of Mockingbird Ministries, uh, and the Advent has a, a strong relationship with that ministry. Uh, and I'll just say that actually Mockingbird really is an influence for, for this series that we are doing. I mean, uh, Mockingbird is a sort of early adopter of um, connecting uh, cultural topics with the Christian faith. So thank you, David, for, for influencing what we're doing here tonight. Before we get started, just a couple of housekeeping things. Um, if you do have a cell phone on you, could you please silence it or vibrate? Um, we uh, are recording the event, so if your cell phone goes off, you'll be that person, <laughs> which is okay, um, but we want to keep that to a minimum. If you do need a restroom, it's a little bit uh, of a hike. You've got to go down that hall and through the kitchen doors upstairs, um, and uh, there's a contact form that's going around. If uh, you'd like to learn more about these kinds of events, please provide your contact information. Whether you're a member of the Advent or not, please put... Uh, your information down so we'll know to reach out to you um, about these types of events. Um, and just so you know, we'll have a conversation between the three of us until, <clears throat> excuse me, until about 8 p.m. or so, uh, and then we'll open it up to some audience Q&A. So if you've got some burning questions, uh, keep them in mind for when we come to that. But why don't we get started, and um, um, David... Uh, who is uh, David Zoll? And, and, and by the way, so, so many people have asked me, does he go by David or Dave? And I'm, I've always just called you Dave, and I've never it's asked really you if that's... D-Z. D or D-Z, right? Very cryptic. Very cool. Um, there's no correct answer to that question, actually. Okay. So my mom calls me David, and therefore I think Birmingham knows me as David. But um, I've, high school, I was, I've always been called Zoll, actually. <laughs> Very rolls off the tongue. I guess it's a good sort of one syllable last name. Um, but Dave is, is what my wife calls me. So I think well, that's probably the one to go with. 
right? That's the right answer. <laughs> I mean, you just mentioned this too. By the way, are your, the two of you, can you all hear them? Is, are there mics on? Maybe bring them up a little bit higher. Um, uh, you have a relationship with Birmingham and the Advent. Do you want to just mention that, say a little bit? Sure. As some of you know, my father served at the, as the dean of the Advent for 10 years. Uh, I was in high school away at boarding school for part of it, and then uh, at college for other parts of it. But I got to be here during the summers and got to know people. And I've really come to appreciate Birmingham as kind of a home away from home. Um, and what's, what's funny is reading through the book again on my way down here, um, I realized how much of the autobiographical sections actually occurred at record stores in Birmingham. So, you know, there are no record stores in Birmingham left, I don't think. These not the ones I used to go They're to. They're all in five points. Charlemagne Records is still there? Yeah. I knew they would be the last one standing. But, um, oh, fantastic. What do I know? But I would say a lot of my formative experiences were like babysitting and lifeguarding, using that money to go buy records. So that was like, a, and, and then it all kind of came out in the wash, I guess, with this. And so we're going to talk about the book mostly tonight. What makes this book uh, unique? Um, why? What makes it different than other music books? And can you say like just a tad about that cover art? Sure. Uh, so I knew I wanted to write at length here. Having written on a website for a long time, I knew I wanted to put out something full length. And when I was uh, looking back at everything I uh, posted for Mockingbird and various other publications over the years, the stuff that I felt most connected to or that had gotten the best writing out of me, the best prose, and clearly where the heart was, was almost always articles about music. Um, and so I took all these essays that I'd written for, uh, for Mockingbird, basically, and then I rewrote them. And I completely um, changed them and tried to weave some, some threads through. But uh, what, I've, what I realized is what I ended up sort of writing as much a memoir as, as a, or a taste biography, as it, you could put it that way, a spiritual... My, my religious faith is weaved throughout her, uh, in a way that I felt natural to me. Uh, but I wanted to write the book that I'd been wanting to read for a long time. And so I hadn't found many books that um, most books about rock and roll completely ignore what the, what the, actual, what the person is actually trying to say, the, the, the musician. Um, they usually talk about albums and, you know, personal life stuff, but in terms of what are they actually trying to convey, what is their message, I didn't get much of that from most of those books, but mainly I, I wanted to write about these particular characters because they resonated with me personally, and I found, uh, as I'll read in a second, that the, the language of my inner life uh, was the language of pop culture and the language of rock and roll specifically. So in order to write about myself, in order to write about the things that have mattered to me, I had to use this language. If I didn't use it, I would be making something up. So that's a little ways to... Yeah, that's hopeful. And you mentioned this, so why don't we just go ahead and transition into... You have a, a reading to open us up with. And do you want to say anything about it before or just launch into reading it? Well, this is... Um, I wrote the introduction last to sort of see what, what came up from writing this book. What, what, did, I, what did I feel the main themes were? Uh, and this is sort of how I, I put some of those main sort of through lines, which you don't have to be interested in rock and roll or pop music or pop culture at all to, I think, identify with. Um, 
When Christianity took root in my life, I not only found its core message of grace so exciting and enlivening as to be compelled to write about it, but music would become one of the primary lenses through which I came to do so. Not just music, but culture itself, high, low, and in between. In other words, it wasn't that I set out to write about the intersection of Christianity and culture. It was simply the most honest language available to me, the lingua franca of my inner life. And those of you who know my father know that I come by this honestly. This is my, um, I just grew up with this stuff, so I didn't have a choice. Um, it was my immediate vocabulary for understanding what was happening to me. In fact, so immersed in it was I that to avoid pop culture would have been to embrace precisely the kind of phoniness that permeates so much religious, quote, engagement with it these days. David Foster Wallace, another tragic and easily romanticized hero of mine, articulated the situation this way. In terms of the world I live in and try to write about, popular culture is inescapable. Avoiding any reference to the pop world would mean either being retrograde about what's permissible in serious art, or else writing about some other world. This book, to me, represents seven years' worth of straining through that lens uh, to, to, to see the world. Um, and I talk about one of the chief operating assumptions in this book is that there's only one reality, which is another way of saying that there's no difference between what is real for the religious person and the non-religious one. Reality is singular, and it applies across the board. We may interpret things differently from others, but those interpretations have little bearing on the truth itself. So the extent to which a song, or a movie, or a joke is rooted in something real will be the extent to which some connection can be made to truth, even the truth. What then is this truth we see played out and corroborated in the lives and work of pop eccentrics? It's myriad, but three dominant aspects are worth mentioning. First and most importantly, there's the truth of human nature, what the book of Job describes as man born to trouble just as sparks fly upward. We are our own worst enemies, and suffering, both self-inflicted and otherwise, is the tie that binds our species. Original sin is simply human self-centeredness replicated and evenly distributed. And work which ignores this reality and puffs up human agency will fall flat eventually. No school of thought has a more sober understanding of human limitation, or a more hopeful answer, than the Christian one. If our shared humanity serves as the initial point of connection with pop eccentrics, two further realities we might recognize are those of, you guessed it, law and... <laughs> See, it's educated. You're in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> what do I mean by law? Law refers to a basis of righteousness, whether it be civil or moral, any authoritative measure or standard from which judgments can be extrapolated. It could be the capital L, Law of the Ten Commandments, or the Sermon on the Mount, or the oughts and ought-nots we find there. Uh, it could equally be the condemning echoes we hear from Madison Avenue. Thou shalt be beautiful, or successful, or intelligent. Or simply the internalized voice of a demanding parent. That feeling of never being quite enough which drives so much of our striving and exhaustion. The law's exact form may be fluid, but its accusatory voice never wavers. It instigates the self-justification that occupies so many of our waking hours, as well as the resulting isolation and competition. All may have fallen short of the glory of God, <coughs> But that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. <laughs> That's a good uh, Zing. <laughs> uh, Just a little bit more. Oftentimes, the secular world, the quote-unquote secular world, is viewed as an escape from the oppressive moral strictures of religion, which it sometimes can be for a stretch. 
And yet, as a number of the essays contained herein hopefully testify, the secular world can be just as condemning and judgmental, if not more so, than the religious one. The law of cool, for instance, often turns out to be a crueler taskmaster than the law of God. The latter, at least, has the benefit of not being a moving target. As much as we might wish it were not the case, we do not escape guilt or self-righteousness by leaving church. Law is not an exclusively religious reality, but a human one, as is the response to it. Faced with our nagging failure to do or be enough, we rebel and rationalize, hiding our true selves and wondering whether and where assistance is to be found. The Beach Boys perceptively saying, you need a mess of help to stand alone. Which quickly brings us to the third point of connection, grace. As we see borne out in our own lives and those of other people, when it comes to lifting the human spirit, nothing is more potent than love in the midst of deserved judgment. If the law at best exposes our shortcomings and at worst breeds total despair, then grace proves time and again to be a force that inspires service and creativity and hope and vulnerability and new life. Like law, grace is a reality so powerful that it transcends the ever-shifting zeitgeist and our fickle political sensibilities. It is no coincidence that grace lies at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, grace lies at the very heart of the universe, the love that moves the sun and stars, Dante. There are naturally some risks involved in a project like this. Lord knows I do not wish to assign spiritual intent or import where there is none, or reduce the power and fun of pop music by denying its ineffability. Nor do I mean to trivialize the claims of Christianity or venerate a culture that exacerbates self-aggrandizing and hurtful nonsense just as often as not. Fortunately, the song has not yet been written which can inflict wounds that aren't there already or demolish the hope that was secured on Easter morning. We are free, in other words, to love both our culture and those who are making and consuming it, which is everyone. We might therefore approach it not with defensiveness and fear but with curiosity and humor. To laugh and to cry and to play, to be wowed and moved, to be surprised and to empathize. Again, my hope is that tracing the unintentional but inescapable confidence with which some of this music points to both the tragedy of human life and its possible redemption can only deepen our faith. It certainly has mine. And even if it doesn't, well, I trust that our merciful friend will live up to his name. Wow. That's the intro. I thought, your intro was, I thought it was a gold mine, your intro. Oh, I really did. Um, one part that I particularly liked, I don't think you even read it. You talked about mediation, that somehow for you, music is a much less mediated uh, medium. I think you were comparing it to, say, TV shows, even great shows or movies. Say more about that. You know, what, what, what is it about music? What is mediation? Well, I realize that I think what the part you're referring to has to do with why was it for me that music meant more yeah. uh, than movies? Because a lot of us, we spend a lot of money on movies, you know. We spend even more money on video games, uh, it turns out, which are highly mediated experiences. But um, uh, it has everything to do with identification. For me, I identified with, the, with these artists that I loved. There was no beginning or end to their story. They, they, they rose and sank, and my star fell and rose uh, along with it. Films um, have a beginning and an ending. You just don't have the same kind of identification with Bill Murray as you do to Brian Wilson, who is a real person who's theoretically speaking from the heart. But I think uh, another form of mediation that I talk about is that music allows you to feel feelings 
and explore corners of your heart and life that you're too scary to go into without a mediator, mm -hmm. without a guide, without someone saying, here's um, this extreme aggression that you're afraid to feel because you don't know what that would say about you. You don't know if you can handle it. You don't know if the world can handle it. Uh, listen to this song. Let Kurt Cobain feel it for you. And try it on. A substitute or something. A substitute, yeah. <laughs> and I think that there's a real uh, uh, permission to, I, I think, one of my, I was reading this today, and I, you know, it's one of these situations where you're like, did I write that? <laughs> but, um, what we mean when we talk about the therapeutic value of music not that it makes us feel better, but that it gives us permission to feel worse, to come as we are, doused in mud and soaked in bleach. Hmm. I wonder, you know, with all that you're talking about, if we could just sort of go as a, a deep example of one particular character in your book of all that you're talking about. And of course, Brian Wilson is huge in the book because of the title, but I know closest to your heart is also Michael Jackson. And so I wonder if you could talk about those two, um, or one or the other, and maybe even just the the comparison or how they're similar and, and all that you just um, explained about um, music and why it connects with you more than, say, movies. Well, this is what someone wrote in 2014, and I quoted it here, but I think it's the, it's the reason why Michael Jackson... I can talk about Michael Jackson because everyone here has an opinion about Michael Jackson. You can't have grown up in America in the last 60 years and not have had some connection with Michael Jackson. And... Um, that may be any number of opinions here. But this is interesting about him. This was written by someone for, a mag, uh, I think the website Slate. Empathy is the quality that's missing from virtually everything ever written about Michael Jackson. We glorify him, or we vilify him, or we pity him, or we take his changing appearance and we use it as fodder for theories about race and gender, the highbrow equivalent of objectification you'll find in the tabloids. We do all of this, but we do not attempt to understand him. The notion of Michael Jackson as a human being remains a radical notion. <clears throat> Make no mistake, Michael was not lying when he famously told us he was, quote, not like other guys. That's the thriller video. <laughs> that does not mean his life and music can't tell us something about the man in the mirror. I'm, I'm a, I, like, have a, a addiction to, like, cute puns. <laughs> this book is great for, like, Twitter. Yeah, the an editor who worked with me on this... Uh, he basically had to dial back the self-referential cutesiness by like 20%. So, so this is a mediated piece. It's a mediated piece. <laughs> but Michael Jackson is the extreme, you know, I think grace, the whole thing is actually written from the point of view of grace. And grace is what, what says that I, God loves us apart from our actions, our doing, our striving. That he loves us um, because he loves us you know, through the, the lens of Christ. And that, I think, gives a person the assurance to um, really deal with who they actually are. And w w are there parts of me that identify with Michael Jackson? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a dangerous question for people. Because he's weird. You, know? I mean, you, you say in the book, we're all Michael Jackson. You're going to take away my fi finale here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I'll just stop talking. Gil, take it over. No, no. It's, uh, you're Michael Jackson. I, the, the book is a, as much about identification as anything else, and I think that when we're young and we're trying to figure out who we are, we often look to people that we admire to tell us who we are. I mean, that's apparent, but it's usually some form of um, uh, literature or a relationship that we're in. With a lot of young men especially, it seems to be uh, 
bands. I mean, it's just as, it's young women too. But, you know, you go to a lot of these shows, and it's nothing but dudes, you know. It's, I don't know what's going on, but they're, 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 they're lacking uh, role models, perhaps, you might say. And so I was looking to all these guys to, to tell me who I was. And Michael Jackson was sort of like, well, can I find something of myself in that? And I think I did, you know. I think, can we have sympathy for someone who is that uh, strange? Um, yeah, so in a footnote... My, the thing I remember in Michael Jackson's chapter was the footnote that you did where, let's see if I can remember it, uh, you know, cry me a river, you know, for Michael Jackson sitting on a mountain of money and all that stuff. Yeah. But you talked about the condition of being a human being, alienation, loneliness, despair, you know, the pastoral side of me, completely connected with that. But, you know, look at what he's doing. He's driven. Yeah. So unfree, so sad. This is what Roland Bainton wrote about Martin Luther, his great, you know, Roland Bainton wrote the book, Here I Stand. Those who are predisposed to fall into despondency, as well as to rise into ecstasy, may be able to view reality from an angle different from that of ordinary folk. Yet it is a true angle, and when the problem or the religious object has been once so viewed, others less sensitive will be able to look from a new vantage point and testify that the insight is valid. What he's saying is that Martin Luther was a total extreme case. Mm -hmm. He was an extreme neurotic, is how we would really describe him, you know. Uh, what does Erickson say? He was a great patient, patient of great importance for Europe. But people who take things to the extreme, uh, often can, we can find something of uh, the truth. In, in, and it turns out I was attracted to nothing but kind of extreme cases. And yet, what you find in all, if you really look deep enough into all of these, Elvis Presley, for example, mm -hmm. and and uh, Axel Rose and Brian Wilson, I mean, they're lonely. You know, we, we've, clearly money doesn't solve people's problems. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Talent doesn't either. In fact, it makes it worse in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. These deep sensitivities people have mean that they, they're able to feel the highest highs but the lowest lows. And so, um, does the gospel apply to them? If it applies to Michael Jackson, then maybe it applies to me. Mm -hmm. No. One uh, chapter in that I do really enjoy is the one on Elvis um, and uh, th that period of his life where he was a little um, uh, more obscure or, um, you know, people, that era of his life, what was it, the 60s or? The late 60s. The late 60s, and he did a bunch of movies. And one of them in particular is this one, Change of Habit. And mm. Man, I, just, I texted you right afterwards, like, wow, um, I need to go see this. Movie. Can you describe? It's not playing theory. Yeah. <laughs> you, have to, you can find it on on YouTube. Uh, yeah, all of Elvis's movies—they're so highly regarded that they're all available for free on Netflix. <laughs> so on, on YouTube, not on Netflix. Change of Habit is the final of Elvis's feature films, and he was making four a year by the end. And um, he was locked into these contracts. You may not know that Elvis Presley was the first movie star to make a million dollars a picture. <coughs> anyway, um, so it didn't matter what he was in. He was going to make his million dollars and go home. And that quickly became like, okay, well, then let's make the worst possible, quickest buck we could. The final movie he was in called Change of Habit, Mary Tyler Moore is in it. It's about a doctor played by Elvis <laughs> named uh, John Carpenter. Get it? JC. So he's in, the, um, he's in the inner city, and it's extremely politically incorrect. Uh, but Mary Tyler Moore is one of these, uh, is a nun, is a Catholic nun, a plain clothes nun. 
It's in the middle of the ecumenical movement, which is going on in the late 60s. It's the only it's like time... Vatican II movie. Yeah, it's the only time <laughs> I, I had ever heard the ecumenical movement referred to by name in a Hollywood motion picture. Um, you just don't watch enough movies. Yeah. Anyway, so Elvis, falls, of course, falls in love with Mary Tyler Moore, and no one is... Everyone is... Uh, who is immune to Elvis Presley's charms. But the reason I got into, the, into it is because someone sent me a clip of Elvis leading worship at a Catholic folk mass in the late 60s. I mean, there's like a crucifix behind him. There's everyone's, you know, altar boys and the whole nine. But he's there with sideburns playing a song called Let Us Pray. And it's a great song. And the bass is really funky. And he's like, what is this? And it turns out it's this movie Change of Habit. And there's a lot to be said for this film, which you can all watch. It's, it's like a... Um, it's very jarring. It goes from really heavy scene to really inappropriate humor to to um, great music, you know, and everything in between. I think they filmed it in like a week. Joe, <laughs> <laughs> you know, were there any uh, you know particular individuals in the book? Uh, I feel like anybody that I talk to about this book, they say that particular you know Elvis or Axl Rose. For me, it was Belle and Sebastian. I'm sure that probably wasn't it for you. But was probably there... not. Who was it? <laughs> you didn't know who Bell Sebastian was. Um, you know, Axel Rose. Loved your relationship with him. Um, and Brian Wilson. You know, say more about Brian Wilson, where the whole sort of mess of help thing came from. You know, we, a lot of us knew him only through bare naked ladies. You know, we're like, right. what? What happened? Did that really happen? Blind and bad, just like Brian Wilson. So Brian Wilson is the songwriter and main you know, visionary behind the Beach Boys which is they're the most highest-selling American rock group of all time. So it's not like a small dip in the water of like our culture. This is a major, major force. And Brian Wilson, um, what, the first thing that attracted to me is he was one of the first very sensitive, they call him the straight man's Judy Garland. Because <laughs> he's, um, he's very sensitive guy. He was right, everyone was writing these songs about being tough and you're Elvis, you know, and you're... Uh, you know, everyone's wearing leather jackets, and then along comes Brian Wilson, and he's singing about like being in his room, and he's he's constantly talking about being crying. You know, a lot of male tears in Brian Wilson's song, <laughs> male adolescent tears. And then, um, so I, f I felt for this guy. And it's very hard. The empathy is off the charts. But the other thing is that he's completely untrained. You know, he's an autodidact of the highest order. Uh, he basically at the age of seventeen just started, sat down at a piano one day and figured out harmonies for these four freshman songs. And um, he just he just went from there. And so I, I see grace at work because he's not a person who his uh, inner sophistication, if you ever heard him try to explain his talent or his gift, it's, you know, it's borderline moronic. But he can't do it without citing God, by the way. But he, when someone's gift is so out of proportion with who they are, we know people like this, so, and it may not be in a smaller way, but his gift, his talent, was he did not earn it. He didn't do anything to deserve it. It just came to him, and I think that's how God works. And I think that, so I see this cracked vessel and all this light shining through it, and I can't help but wonder where the light's coming from. And so um, he would, even when he wasn't trying to do something good, would do something amazing. Can you talk about creativity then? Uh, and one thing that um, sticks with me in this book is where you talk about uh, often we look to the youth for creativity, but then you talk a bit about uh, creativity coming even in an older age and sometimes really good things. Um, say more about this idea. 
you know, if you if you start thinking seriously about rock and roll or pop culture in general, you come up against all these cultural edicts that are there that maybe you didn't think that you've kind of taken on faith. Uh, but one of them is that um, creativity is the realm of the young, and sort of for people that are under the age of forty. Right. And that's nonsense. I mean, that's clearly not true. Um, it's not true if you read Cormac McCarthy. Uh, it's not true if you listen to Bill Fay. It's not true if you, uh, you know, there any number of great, you know, Marilyn, Marilyn Robinson won the, won the prize again this year. She's, she's, she's getting up there. She's more than 40. She's more than 40. So I was very interested in that, and I was, that, that was one of the many, the ageism that is, um, that's kind of a buzzword now, but it's really true when it comes to pop music. And so if you can find someone like Brian Wilson's like 75, he looks like somebody's grandfather, and he's, he just put out a new record, and it's amazing. Really? <laughs> but the, the, the people who are writing and consuming pop music are so skewed towards uh, not just young people, young but stuff. people who've got a young perspective on life, who haven't thought much about death, in other words. So it tends to be not as... Um, it, it always, the bias is always headed in that direction. Not that there's anything wrong with it per se, but if you don't have the rest of it, you know, he's, there's a reason why Bob Dylan's so important and remains because yeah. he's the only interview Bob Dylan gave on his new record was to the AARP. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great interview. Yeah, you too gives uh, Brian Wilson a big nod on a new record. Did you know that? California. Yes, yes. Big I just want to let you know that. I have, I, everyone does. You can't. So, what about the, going back to the creativity part? The crucified soul of rock and roll. Why crucified? Why not resurrected or incarnated or ascended? You know, play play the theology out. What is it about crucifixion that so fits rock and roll? Well, there's another myth out there that creativity is yoked to suffering. And you know, I was when Paul McCartney's wife died, Linda. I was, you know, the cynical <coughs> part of me was very excited because I thought, here comes a great record. <laughs> Terrible, the man is lost his soulmate, and I'm thinking this could be really good for us. <laughs> and um, so, that, I don't want to say that's necessarily true, but what I've noticed with a lot of these, um, these artists that I'm interested in is their trouble is almost always proportioned to their gifts. Like, you, you don't get through life without suffering, and a lot of times the weakness is the point at which they, they, they find their, their gift. It's the point where you're, you're on your knees. You know, a lot of the stories that I try to tell in here are of people coming to the end of themselves mm -hmm. and finding inspiration at the point where they have essentially been crushed or made low or brought to their knees. And so I find that to be very in keeping with Corinthians and with the, the Christian uh, you know, dynamic of death and resurrection. So the crucified soul of rock and roll, and, and rock and roll generally is about, you know, discontent. It's not, it's very hard to write, it, Bono's the one who always says, it's extremely hard to write joyful rock music. music. Yeah. It's like much harder than writing something about Do you think rock and roll's gone? I mean, lead singer, lead guitarist, bassist, drummer? Yeah, what is rock and roll anymore, right? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like I'm not going to touch that question. I, I don't yeah. have no it's idea. Outside of the it's uh, it, I, I, I think that some of this stuff will never die, but the parameters may change. And I'm not a lot. I like this. There's great music coming out every day. I like the democratization of the music industry. The democratization of the publishing industry is what allows Mockingbird to put out all of our books. 
So yeah. I think it's great, but it, I also think that um, uh, everything there's a you know the Ecclesiastes is right. There's like a time and a season to everything. You just history of pop music is of certain styles coming back and going out of you know it's nothing changes and everything changes. Well, speaking of Ecclesiastes. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the, fi the final chapter um, is called uh, Confessions of a Former Music Critic. In that, in that you, you talk about identity and sort of, as our collect says that I open with, um, sundry and manifold changes of the world um, mm -hmm. and how things uh, do sort of go through cycles. And there are these sort of laws that are related to music and ones that you brought up are sort of the laws of obscurity, a law of irony, a law of cynicism. Um, and uh, <laughs> unpack uh, that chapter for us um, in terms of, uh, for you, uh, and, and what that meant for you as a, as a music critic. Where's the grace? <laughs> well, I'll tell the story of what, what the, the way it started, well, the, this realization came to me. There, there used to be a great record store in Homewood called Noise, and it, it was next to the Homewood Sporting Goods. And it was the best record store I've ever been to. And I've been to ones in all over the country. And this was so well curated is the word for it now. Uh, I was introduced to more great music there than anywhere I've ever been. But I also had an experience there that showed me how vapid and how much, how much layer of identity politics is layered on top of the music itself. How much law, in other words, how much dictates, how much social forces. When I went in there, and this is the guy who introduced me to things like the Left Bank and Scott Walker and these very cool, cool bands that no one knows about. And he said, you got to listen to this. It's the best single I've heard in 10 years. And he turns on uh, a CD, and it, it's Coldplay's Yellow, <laughs> okay? Which is an amazing song. But um, I was like, that's a great song. I'll get that record when the day it comes out. The band became enormous. They're a big band. They made millions and millions of dollars. They married Gwyneth Paltrow. They, then they consciously uncoupled. Um, <laughs> but uh, I went back in there after the next college, next break from school, and I said, well, I, I really like that Coldplay record. And he said, Cold, they're terrible. I said, well, what? I thought they were cool. Target. I thought they were good. It was a moving target. And in that moment, it's like, this is all a waste. Or, I mean, there, there, a, lot of this, a lot of this, it's not a waste. This is beautiful music that we're talking about. But there's so much nonsense about what you should like and what you shouldn't like, uh, layered on top of any objective merits that the music may or may not have. And so I use Bob Seger as an example there. I use Celine Dion as an example. There's this, great ex there's this great story about a guy who is, has a Pandora subscription. Pandora is a free music streaming service. It's like a radio that's curated for just you. And he writes into the service, he says, Celine Dion keeps coming on my station. <laughs> Something is wrong with this. It's like, well, you know, what's the station? Oh, it's, it's around Sarah McLaughlin, who's a singer songwriter. And it's like, well, did... Um, did the music, was it jarring to, to the rest of the city? Well, no. Um, was it, uh, you know, was, was it unlike anything else? He's like, well, not really, but it was Celine Dion. <laughs> and they have all these back and forth with the guy, and then finally he realizes, that, oh my goodness, I like Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> the law of 
undressed you. Yeah. And there's a there's a point in time. It's still we're still living in the age where to like yeah. capacity you like Celine yeah. Dion or you enjoy her even. Even ironically, is to take take. Can you enjoy? It's to basically it's to basically come out as a non-serious person in, in life. You know? you, can you couple that to Axel Rose? I love that chapter too, because you had the law of cool, and you also need the law of relevance, which I thought was really great. As if Axel Rose was concerned with the law of relevance or being relevant. Yeah, that's another term critics always throw out, and critics of anything. Yeah. Critics of relevant church is a big deal. Yeah. Relevant church. Yeah. Uh, no artist that's worth much is, is ever interested in being relevant. Yeah. They're interested in conveying something authentic to themselves, or they're doing something beautiful, doing something that will last. Relevant is is uh, mishmash. You know, it's like uh, the human condition remains static. So the uh, the relevant things are just eternal things. I think. So, but Axel Rose was. Uh, the Axel Rose chapter is very. I, I love it because he's it's a good guy. chapter. He grew up in a fundamentalist background and with going to church four times a week and in rural Indiana. And he learned how to sing at church, and um, but he had a Pentecostal father, adopted father, and uh, was very strict with him. And he ran away from it. You know, it was sort of a bootstrapping kind of pietism <laughs> that Americans seem to specialize in. And um, he ran as far away as he could from it. And what he found in L.A. was some freedom and some acceptance and some love. And the fruit of that was this incredible collaboration called Appetite for Destruction, the best-selling debut record of all time. And you can't go to a sports game. You can't go to an Alabama game without hearing the opening chords to Welcome to the Jungle. If you, if you don't know what that is, that's what that is. That thing. Um, you can't go to any sporting event in the country without hearing both Paradise City and so anyway. But that's the fruit of this collaboration of freedom. And of course, once it did as well as it did, it set a standard of like what they had to achieve in order to be seen as continually successful. This is what Michael Jackson dealt with with the thriller. The rest of it's like what Michael Spitz dealt with after he won all those gold medals and what Michael, you know, like what anyone who has too much success early in life. That success becomes an albatross, mm -hmm. and it becomes a law. It becomes, I'm only good if I'm equal to or surpassing this thing that has actually equaled and surpassed everything else that's ever come before it. So with Guns N' Roses, this created a huge amount of uh, acrimony and uh, litigation and um, uh, you know, ill will, and then ultimately enormous amounts of creative paralysis where the guy didn't make a record for 14 years because he was so focused on it having to be as good as this thing that he felt he had to be. And so there's no freedom in that. So I talk about Axl Rose as relates to the fact that he's got one of the world's largest crucifix collections. And he's, you know, the, the cover of Appetite for Destruction is a cross. And he can't seem to get away from the crucifixion imagery, um, even though he wants to. But I think that... Uh, actually, can I read that end of that Parker's chapter? Parker's back. I'm almost yeah, it's... I, it's I, one, uh, the only hope I see is the one hanging around Axel's neck and tattooed on his arm. Seriously, despite his severe misgivings about the faith in which he was raised, crosses dominate not only the Use Your Illusion era videos, but his image since then as well. These days, he seldom appears on stage without an enormous cross necklace, an accessory which would, could be dismissed as a fashion statement, were it not accompanied by his outspoken affection for and collection of antique crucifixes. One can only presume that something about the central symbol of Christianity must have stuck with him. It surely isn't just that he fancies himself a bit of a rock messiah, though clearly he does. 
having traveled from the Nazareth of Lafayette to the <coughs> Jerusalem of the Hollywood Hills, only to be met with resistance and suffering, you can understand how he might identify with our Lord. That's supposed to be slightly tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I suspect it goes deeper. Fortune and shame may have eaten Axel alive. Judgment and criticism may have dogged him inside and out. But apparently Calvary never lost its attraction. Not even the most toxic of religious upbringings, decadent of worldly indulgences, or protracted of psychological quagmires could strip it of its power. Perhaps this is because the cross of Christ addresses none more directly than those who have been ravaged by the law and ravaged in return. It summarizes judgment at its most visceral and inescapable. Indeed, the cycle of recrimination kills God himself. Yet in speaking of death and, quote, destruction, and the worst of human nature, also points beyond those things to the one who came not to condemn the world but to save it, to bring an end of the law and justify those who cannot justify themselves, no matter how many great songs they write or rants they go on. In other words, that glittery crucifix of Axel symbolizes the hope that, like November rain, <laughs> the fearful cycle of condemnation and reactivity will not last forever. The hope that, yes, there's a heaven above you, baby. Um, I think that's a good, a good sort of note to end on um, uh, before going into audience Q&A um, but, but before we do that one last question is there um, is there anything next I mean uh, or is this the, the, the albatross <laughs> no I mean I wrote a book that no one's interested in so I'm like I, I just kidding. You guys are hopefully all interested in someone. But uh, it's a hard sell for Christian people, and it's a hard sell for secular people, you know. That's good point. So um, I think that that's uh, the book I wanted to write. But I'm not going to write another book like this. Uh, we just wrote a book. I just wrote a book called Law and Gospel, Theology for Sinners and Saints. And that's, I wrote it with my two colleagues at Mockingbird, and we had a lot of fun with that. And so the next book, I want to write a book about busyness and scorekeeping. Um, but so I feel like I got it out of my system. People yeah. always ask, well, who would you do in the next book? Right. And I think, well... Um, You're moving on to busyness. You know, I, I have some ideas for the next one, but not, not quite yet. Great. Can I read part of that? Yeah, the Michael yeah, Jackson I'm sorry. Thing? Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Is that all right? We, we've yes. got to have you read some from Michael Jackson. Okay. I don't remember where I was when the Berlin Wall fell. I can't tell you what I was doing when I heard that my grandfather had passed. I'm a little shaky on the details of my wife telling me she was pregnant with our second child. <laughs> but I can recall with crystal clarity the day Michael Jackson died. It was mid-afternoon on June 25, 2009. I was sitting in Manhattan Church basement working in a windowless office. I got a G-chat message from a friend asking me what I made of the news about MJ. She knew I was a Jackson obsessive. What news, I replied. Five minutes later, I was legging it to my apartment where I stayed for hours glued to the TV until Jermaine issued that fateful statement. I didn't go to work the next day. We don't get to choose what makes us feel sad or shocks us. We simply respond, and those responses often betray embarrassing sensitivities and values. A close relative had died a few months before Michael, and at her funeral, I had wanted so badly to feel worse. But the emotions simply weren't there. I found that numbness alienating. Not so the day Michael died. This time, it was my wife who was alienated. <laughs> I had refused to take a sick day after that 
disillusioning case of violent Korean barbecue-related food poisoning a few weeks prior. <laughs> but this warranted convalescence? Whom has she married? Truth be told, the force of the wallet took me by surprise as well. I'm still trying to figure out what was behind the funk, both Michael's and my own. I read the sec that next part to you, now I'm going to finish with the, where I end up. <clears throat> Michael's face externalizes an awareness of internal brokenness, the inconvenient reality that all is not as it should be, that cre creation needs fixing or scrapping altogether. The rebirth, if that is what he was after, didn't work. It couldn't. The wounds and questions were internal, far from the reach of the scalpel. Instead of solving anything, the surgeries only perpetuated themselves, each one leading to the next, the perfection always just out of reach. Not surprisingly, as the changes to his appearance escalated, so did his retreat from the world. Like his erstwhile father-in-law before him, Elvis Presley, he had to marry the daughter of a king, <laughs> Michael did what suffering people who have the means to reconstruct reality often do. He hid, both in a fog of painkillers and behind the bedazzled walls of Neverland. Lest we exonerate Michael or confirm his self-image as a martyr, let's be clear, his motives were no less mixed than anyone else's. The wounds of childhood are often the place where dysfunction and sin pour most directly out of us, and it doesn't take a degree in psychoanalysis to identify the vicious cycle. Wherever the hurts run deepest is where our weaknesses will inevitably lie. His playing God may have had sympathetic roots, but that doesn't make it any less of an affront to the first commandment. What I'm trying to say is that we are all Michael Jackson. I am Michael Jackson. His problems were simply exposed and amplified. But I am insecure. I am fragile. I vacillate between seeing myself as the victim in every situation and thinking I am somehow the one to blame for all the wrongs. I carry baggage from childhood, conflicting messages received, hurt and regret that I'm still trying to reconcile years later. In more subtle and less expensive ways, I try to reform reality to suit my needs and make me feel better about myself. I certainly have things I would change about myself if I could, no question. I mourn that June afternoon for all the Michael Jackson music we will never get to hear. I mourn for the fans he left behind and the comeback they never got to witness. But more than that, I mourn because Michael's infirmities, which were my own, had not dissolved into a pile of sand like he did at the end of the Remember the Time short film. I mourn that day because his gifts, which were far beyond my own, had not been enough to save him. As much joy as they brought and continue to bring, they wouldn't be able to save me either. Thankful, I am also like Michael Jackson in that I am not God. I need God. I like to think that the Apostle Paul was thinking of Michael and me when he wrote 2 Corinthians with its beautiful words about reconciliation, relief, and rebirth. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No matter how hard he tried, no matter how much surgery he got, or how many number one hits he scored, Michael Jackson could not transcend his own weakness any more than he could relive the past. <coughs> Which means that the hope for Michael Jackson is the same as ours. It lies in the one whose property is always to have mercy, who does not hold our transgressions or talents against us, and instead grants newness of life to all who would usurp his station. Pretenders to the throne are not shunned, but forgiven. Yes, even those wearing sequined gloves. 
Can I get a shamon? <laughs> Let's open it up for some questions. Does anybody have a burning question they'd like to ask? Do you want to ask a question, or do you want to? No, no, we'll mic. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to manage the mic for us? Sure. As sort of the resident senior citizen, I want to run this past you. You mentioned Axel Rose had a Pentecostal background. I recall reading in that wonderful journal of Southern Life, Garden and Gun an article about uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, Waylon Jennings, and I believe one other guy had a great jam session in one of the Memphis recording studios. Jerry Lee and Elvis last outlasted the other two. The reason Jerry Lee said is because we came from a Pentecostal background. We knew how to sing, we knew how to preach, we knew how to act, and we knew how to play. It seems to me there's a thread that runs through from blues, rhythm and blues, country and western, and proceeds into rock and roll, that all of this has some sort of a, a common thread starting way back long before even I was born. Do you find that to be true in your research on rock and roll? <clears throat> well, it's very difficult to, to take it, a, to, to remove rock and roll from its uh, from from the church. I mean, a lot of this comes from rhythm and blues. And some people, Bono is always quoted, says that the psalms are the blues, you yeah. know, that the, the, the songs of lament, and that that's where a lot of that language actually comes from. Uh, and, you know, the spirituals, uh, the people sang on the plantations, I mean, that's, those are... That actually forms the backbone of all that. In terms of the culture of Pentecostalism and the revival tents and things like that, I think a certain amount of uh, show business was inherent in that, and, and that did help people know what worked and what didn't, and have the stamina <laughs> needed. I mean, some of those revival meetings were like six, seven hours long. Um, but, you know, I... Most of the people I write about here have pretty conflicted relationships with the church, but I think that the, the closer they, unintentionally, intentionally or not, their uh, their voice when it's articulating something that's universal is going to get very close to the gospel, or at least to a Christian understanding of life, which is just an understanding of life. Uh, so I find it to be extremely encouraging to me in my faith that. These great heroes of mine, actually, when I when I listen to their music, when I hear the yearnings of their heart, the frustrations, their desire to love and be loved, to their difficult the heartaches, the difficulties they have with their um, with global structures and institutions, and their need to yearning for forgiveness. I mean, I hear the same things I hear on Sunday. Um, I wish that the church was a little bit better of a. Res a, re of a hospital, or more of an option. But for, yeah, well, there you go. Mark. Church is an option, isn't that from? Church is an option, Portland. Portland, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, another question. <laughs> hey, David, I wanted to ask a music connoisseur such as yourself, if 
you had one song to pick, what would it be to best describe suffering? And is there a law of gospel in the center of it? That's right. The thing that comes immediately to me is uh, there's a Beach Boys song called Till I Die. It's like people felt the last gasp of the cogent Brian Wilson before he kind of floated off into the ether of schizophrenia and drug use. But it's, uh, I'm a cork on the ocean floating over the raging sea. How deep is the ocean? I've lost my way. These things I, I, these things I need until I die. And it's this is very lost soul on the waves of life, uh, confused battered, broken, and, and it's also a beautiful song. So I think that there's something very beautiful about that. I mean, if you were to, uh, there are other people that probably write, <coughs> perform things in a more, there's not much law and gospel to that outside of the fact that life is just, if, if you confront life with open eyes, it will crush you. And so you don't, the law works on people whether they're in church or not. And so, um, that, uh, to, that, to that extent, the very fact that he's writing a song, he feels the need to sing something and that it comes out so beautifully is in itself an act of grace to me. So that's how I would, how I would hear that. But there's tons of songs in here that I think um, capture the dynamics we're talking about. There's tons that don't, but, but they're not in here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, let's wait for the mic. Hey, I, I think your dad probably would have said whipping post. Uh, he seemed to bring that up quite often. Um, I, I was just wondering, um, how have we gone in 50 years or so from you know, burning records to Christian rock? And is that really a thing? And do you like it? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm still a little conflicted about it. That doesn't seem right to me. It should be either rock and roll or church. And I, I, I'm, right. Yeah. Um, I think that's a false dichotomy, frankly. I, I think that uh, there's nothing about the form itself that is anti-Christian. If it's talking the truth, then the truth is the truth. But, um, you know, there's a lot of, of idolatry and, um, as I say, nonsense that goes along with rock and roll, a lot of delusion. Um, but at its best, if it's conveying any truth, either emotional truth or you know, intellectual truth, then it's got something to say. As far as Christian rock is concerned, I mean, I think there's lots of great artists who are Christians who write rock, make rock and roll music. I think the genre known as Christian rock or contemporary Christian music is a bastardization of that. I, I, and I think most, it's a commercial, it's what's motivating it is almost never a it's a bottom line mentality it's pretty crass when you get down to it but I see an enormous amount of incredibly gifted uh, artists who are writing from that perspective and, uh, I, I'm trying, I was at the Sufjan Stevens concert last night in uh, Richmond and it was transcendent it was as good as anything I've ever seen but then, you know, I've listened to the new Kendrick Lamar record, and that's got a lot going on in it about guilt and forgiveness and, you know, desire for mercy and judgment. And there's, 
in fact, I see a, like a creeping number of signs of life in this regard that just tend not to be very commercial. But there's you too. Um, yeah, there's always you too. <laughs> Do you have any uh, final thoughts to a captive audience? Final thoughts? Um, I mean, thank, thanks for listening. I, I think uh, I poured my heart into this book. And it's, um, it's a bit of a stretch because I get... This is what I was trying to do with this book. What we do with Mockingbird is, is actually really serious, although we don't take ourselves seriously. My hope is that I'm trying to convey connections between how we live life and things that we believe to be true about deeper things. And um, you can do that by telling people or by showing them. And uh, telling people gets, usually gets more traffic. And uh, it gets people upset. It gives them something to disagree with. But showing a person how these things work out in the life of a human being, how judgment crushes you, uh, and how it creates humility, and humility is a place where, where faith is born. You, to show how that happens in your own life and in the lives of the, that that's what I'm trying to do with this book. It's, so it's ambitious. Uh, my fear with this was always the same as my fear with anything that we do with Mockingbird is that you get labeled as like a pop culture industry, or that you're overly interested in pop culture. And like pop culture, I don't care about pop culture really. It's it's just the honest language that I that I it's the world in which I live. So. Um, I always find it, it it's diminutizing and it makes it sound juvenile like Mockingbird's a glorified youth ministry. And what we're talking about is sin and guilt and redemption and death. Like that's, that's atonement and uh, you know, mercy. And so I don't think those things are juvenile at all. And I wouldn't want to trivialize those things by writing about them in, through the lens of Axl Rose. But if you listen to the music that Axl Rose made, that's not a trivial feelings that are coming across. Mm -hmm. Like a 13-year-old may be really upset about something that you would consider petty. But if you remember what it's like to be 13, those are very real feelings. And so they're, uh, no matter what ve the venue is that people are dealing with reality, uh, we can judge it or we can try to understand it and find a point of connection. And that's what I ultimately hoped to do with the book. I'm not sure if that's come across, frankly, because it gets really eccentric. <laughs> You write about eccentrics, you have to be eccentric yourself a little bit. And, um, but it's the best I could do. That's all you could do. Yeah. Um, well, I think it comes across. And thank you so much for being here tonight. And thanks, Gil, for being our yeah. conversation partner. Um, buy the book. Uh, there's also copies of uh, Law and Gospel, which David mentioned. Cindy, raise your hand over there. Cindy's got books. And also a couple copies of... I hear some uh, grumbling over here. Is there some grumbling? No. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, I thought maybe I missed a qu burning question or something. But buy the books um, and the magazines for sale too. Uh, and just a couple of announcements: we are uh, keeping the series up. The next uh, event is on um, July 9th, Thursday at 7:30 a.m. Uh, we're partnering with Birmingham Creative Roundtable. Uh, James Kling's there. James, raise your hand. Um, we're doing an event with David Fleming, who's the CEO of Rev Birmingham, and uh, he's going to be talking about Birmingham's past, present, future, drawing on the power of place to inspire creativity. 
So if you can wake up that early and come downtown to Clingman Commons at the Advent, uh, please come out to that event on J Thursday, July 9th at 7.30 a.m. And uh, if you're not familiar with Advent, please know that we worship on Sunday. We have worship services at 7.30 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5 p.m. And I want to thank uh, all the volunteers that helped to put this event on tonight. Thank you, Brandon, uh, for coordinating uh, the event. And uh, thank you for uh, to Andrew Andrew Farrow. Is he somewhere back there from Cahaba Brewery for, for providing the beer? Can we give him a round of applause? Amanda Thames uh, from Davenport's Pizza Palace for providing the pizza. Let's give them a round of applause. And thank you all for coming, and most especially, thank you so much, Dave. This is I've been so excited about this. I'm so glad you're here. Please feel free to stick around, uh, drink the rest of the beer, eat the rest of the pizza, buy the books, mingle. Uh, uh, thank you for coming. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks. Thank you.